I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy it. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix and Book Club podcast. With me is that greatest of Zeppelin captains, Jeff Goad. Ahoy, matey. All right. And today we're very honored to have special guest Chris Holmes, RPG artist, son of the D&D basic set, John Eric Holmes. And <laughs> welcome aboard. Thank you. I came here all the way from Southern California. Indeed, indeed. Because I need your gold. <laughs> Before we swirl into this hole in the, uh, you know, the poles of the earth into this... The land of everlasting sunlight. Uh, <laughs> all right. This week we're reading uh, Tarzan at Earth's Core. But before we uh, t- talk about that, Chris, I'd like to know a little bit about your background in gaming. Um, did you grow up playing uh, prior to the basic set that your father wrote or what was going on there? We played Clue and chess. <laughs> but my, uh, it was, I think it was 1977. My older brother introduced both of us to uh, a version of Dungeons and Dragons that was uh, influenced by the Caltech uh, overly crunchy rules mm-hmm. system. And we played that, uh, in a large group. And I think my father was maybe a little frustrated by that experience. But anyway, he then went and bought all the Dungeons and Dragons books and chain mail and everything and tried to figure it all out on his own. And he still was a little frustrated with that experience. So <laughs> he said, somebody needs to write a beginner's uh, guide to Dungeons and Dragons. And that's what became the basic set. Mm-hmm. And was he playtesting that with you? We, yeah, he did a little playtesting of it with me. Uh, unfortunately, then uh, my little group uh, graduated from high school and we sort of dis- dis- disasperated whatever <laughs> away yeah. to various colleges. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, did you have a kind of iconic character at the time that you loved playing? We were encouraged to create three characters at the beginning because they thought they would all die off so quickly. So. Two of them stayed forever, Zerith, the uh, dark elf, and Boinger, the uh, romantic hobbit okay. fighter. And you eventually uh, were the co-creators of, um, was it one or two novels with them, uh, with Boinger and Zerith, or what? It was, it was a three, three, printish, uh, three published short stories and one novel, uh-huh. Maze of Peril. Okay. And those were just recently re- reissued in a sort of limited edition, correct? Thank you, yes, called Tales of Peril from Black Blade Publishers. Mm-hmm. Okay. With and some new illustrations by yours truly. There you go. And that's uh, available directly from Black Bay currently? That's right. Yeah. Right. Right. We'll try to put a link on that in the show notes, which I'm very delinquent on. Um, all right. So how about um, the fiction? Were you? I know that your father was quite a fan of the Burroughs works. Were you also exposed to that a lot as a child? <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. I, I, they were read aloud to me before Uh-oh. I could read, along with H.P. Lovecraft and even a little Clark Ashton Smith and... Abraham Merritt, but uh, he read me the entire Pellucidar series and then the entire Mars series. And I think he started on the Venus series, but by, by that time I was maybe old enough to read on my own. Mm-hmm. Before you could read, your dad was reading Lovecraft to you? Yes, I believe so. <laughs> I don't know what age I wow. was. Wow. He read me the Rats in the Walls, I think. Wow. <laughs> Changed the name of the cat. Right, but, right. <laughs> 
tried to scare me with rats in the walls. <laughs> Amazing. And, and so, so, and you're you're uh, a native Southern Californian, right? Uh, yes, that's right. Right. So it just seems so uh, incongruous, you know. H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, New England, literally the diametrical opposite part of the country. <laughs> that's <laughs> true. It was hard for my father to collect uh, Weird Tales magazines in Honolulu, Hawaii, where he grew up. Mm-hmm. But he did a pretty good job, I guess. Mm-hmm. And. How much did you pursue reading the, the fantastic fiction afterwards, you know, once you were, you know, discovering fiction for yourself? Well, I, uh, I still read Elspreg de Camp. I'm still uh, trying to finish everything by Fritz Leiber and uh, more Jack Vance. Hmm. I've reread Edgar Rice Burroughs a couple of times. There you go. So I'm still a, still a fan. There you go. And I hear you take umbrage with my stance that uh, that D and D ruined fantasy literature. Oh yeah, there's still a lot of good fantasy literature to be found. Maybe you have to look harder. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the stance is that the the fiction that is sort of directly uh, influenced by D and D is kind of uh, problematic. My, you know, and I, I'm being very hyperbolic. I, I don't <laughs> think that fantasy fiction, uh, contemporary fantasy fiction, is bad by any stretch of the imagination. I just know that I am far more interested in the fantasy that was written prior to 1974, because I feel like a lot of it was um, the the boundaries and rules that we have around fantasy fiction now, in a lot of ways, I don't think were existent at all prior Mm. to D&D kind of coming around and codifying a lot of it in the minds of the fans of the genre. Okay. That's kind of more my take on it. Yeah. All right. You are forgiven. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that's great forgiven two weeks in a row hum, uh, or three weeks Hamza Hamza forgives us <laughs> I don't think Shauna had anything to forgive us for but you know maybe she oh. does that <laughs> we'll, we'll find something else to argue about <laughs> perfect alright so uh, Chris which edition of the book are you working with uh, it's the Ace uh, paperback mm-hmm. my dad had a few Burroughs hardbacks but not not a enough to get uh, Tarzan at the Earth's core, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. But it has a Frank Frazetta cover, mm-hmm. and it's not one of his best, but it may be one of his first. Right. It's the one with him fighting. I have a 73 printing of that one. That's the one. Right. And it's with the cave bear, although it looks kind of more like a wolf with a snake's body. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Yeah. He got a lot better. Actually, if you look in, the frontispiece is rather, is nicer, his mm-hmm. drawing of the Thipdar. Uh, that's probably in the F1. You have the F180. This one doesn't have the frontispiece. Oh, I have the F180. Yeah. It cost my dad 40 cents. There you go. I have a copy <laughs> of that on my bookshelf, too, but it was a little too delicate for me to to uh, use as my reading copy today. So this is the one I ended up using. Uh, this is my third reading, and I, I guess I'm wearing it out. <laughs> and I'm working with a slightly later edition. I've got the Ballantine version here. Well, that's nice, too. Yeah, it's got a very cool cover by Neil Adams, where mm-hmm. Tarzan is being carried through the skies by, the uh, by a pterodactyl. Yeah. Um, I've also learned that apparently Tarzan's loincloth has underwear underneath it, or some <laughs> kind of a something underneath it. So that that, that that's nice. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> And he's about to be fed to the pterodactyls. It's a right. pretty cool cover. Right, right. Yes. Um, now, I'm kind of cheating, but kind of not with this, because as Hoy knows, I like to have um, 
paperbacks from 1979 or before. And this is the cover that they were using from 1975 onward. But uh, if I'm being uh, rigorously honest, this edition is the 13th printing from 1990. Oh, I know, (laughs) I know. (laughs) Uh, Here's also a little bit of trivia. Uh, You have a Ballantine and I have an Ace copy of the same one. And it was the um, Ace and Ballantine were arguing over the rights of which of the Burroughs series they had the rights to. And so Ace had originally started printing about 10 of the, the Tarzan ones, and then they were given a, basically a cease and desist, whereas Ballantyne was able to print all 24 of them. But Ace was able to keep this one in print because it was also part of the Pellucidar series. Uh-huh. So they, they split the difference on this one. And it's the first uh, crossover in literature, right. possibly, right? Right, right. At least the first official one. <laughs> <laughs> well, Burroughs was many things, and I think he was a good businessman, too. Mm-hmm. Now, before we started recording, uh, Chris and Hoy and I were chatting, and there, we, we kept we kept uh, dipping our toes into conversations that I was like, no, 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 save it for the recording, save it for the recording. And Hoy, one of them is you you were you were discussing these uh, paperbacks that you had. This might be a good time to actually right, right. chat about that. So I was trying to find a, a, an affordable copy of um, the third is it Changeling Earth, the the uh, Fred Saberhagen book, uh-huh. and I couldn't find one, and I found a lot, and it had some other Saberhagen books. And uh, got that. And it turned out it said there that it was a part of the estate sale uh, from Dr. Dr. John Eric Holmes. So uh, and there was three or four other lots up at the same time. This is the one I zoomed in on. I said, oh, well, <laughs> A, it's Appendix N and it's Dr. Holmes's. So that's about as close as I'm going to get to the great man himself. So there it is. It's not it's not, you know, there's no book plate in there or anything like that. But I, you know, that's what it was. So <laughs> that's you great. You, I may give you a book uh, someday in the future to make you even closer. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but I, my dad's collection was too large for me to all take home with me. Mm-hmm. So I had to, I took about a third of it with me. Mm-hmm. Hopefully the other, me now. yeah, hopefully the other two thirds found good homes and I, I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. they did. So, yes. uh, and I, I think, um, also going ahead, I think Jeff and I, you may have, I don't know how many of our episodes you've listened to, but I would say that more than half of our guests started with your dad's edition of Dungeons and Dragons as their first exposure to role-playing games. Yeah. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah. I've been listening to almost every episode, at least the beginnings of them all, because sometimes I arrive at my destination when your show isn't quite over. <laughs> and I never get back in, but I've enjoyed them all. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you. We appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Except so, that crazy Michael Moorcock guy. He was in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was a highlight. That's, <laughs> that was such a, such it a special was. moment. I enjoyed it a yeah. lot. <laughs> so now we can look at our Hygaxian word of the day. And before we started recording, uh, Chris, you actually guessed what it was. So do you want to <laughs> let our listeners know what the word is? <laughs> the magic word is spore. 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 Yes, spore. And it is a noun that is the track or scent of an animal. And it's not S-P-O-R-E, as many of you listening might be thinking. It's S-P-O-O-R. And as Chris mentioned, it's found on just about every other page of this book. (laughs) Uh, But on the very, very first page of it, it says, And then to his nostrils came the scent spore of black men, and with it, faintly, the suggestion of another scent. And Tarzan knew that a white man was on safari before the head of the column came in view along the wide, well-marked game trail above which the Lord of the Jungle waited. So Tarzan could smell the difference between the white man and the black man. Um, But then also on page 174, we have another usage of it that I wanted to highlight just because it kind of tickled me. And that's, 
Through the dark wood ran Tarzan of the Apes, guided only by the delicate and subtle aroma that was the scent spore of the red flower of Zoram, and which would have been perceptible to no other human nostrils <laughs> than those of the Lord of the Jungle. So yes. our word is spore. Or. But Chris, you also have a word that you would like to throw into the pot this episode. Yes, uh, he, the, he also luckily uses one of my favorite words, Stygian, mm-hmm. describing Stygian blackness. Mm-hmm. And my pet theory is that uh, Robert E. Howard read this word in a few Tarzan or Pellucidar novels and said, Stygian, I wonder where that comes from. Right. right. I think it stuck with him along with Cimmerian. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I think it's cool that he was naming places after these like very evocative adjectives. Um, it works. It really works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think um, this one... In particular, the the serpent men, or in this case, the what are they called? The the H, uh, the the horribs. Oh, the horribs mm-hmm. are are maybe very uh, also influenced on the the serpent men of Volusia who appear in the Cull novels. Yeah, yeah, I so, think so. They're great. The horrible horribs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and with this, we can now go on into the library. So, yeah, Chris, what are your initial thoughts on Tarzan at the Earth's core? Well, I still love it after the third reading maybe slightly less than the last time I read it. <laughs> Cause I, this time I was looking for more racism. Whereas the first, the, the second time I read it, the racism kind of jumped out at me like, Oh no. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but uh, uh, a few things that, I mean, he created a lot of tropes that you eventually get tired of, but some of them you become fond of. And I kind of enjoyed the, the silly romance this mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. That other people complain about so much. <laughs> so maybe as you get older, this, this Agarus Burroughs' attempt to write romantic fiction might <laughs> grow right. on you. Right. Who knows? And it, but it's a big mess of a book. It, yeah. it, but it has some wonderful <laughs> stuff in it. That the plot does not hold together very well, no, and the right. ending is very disappointing. But right, right. there's so much. It's right. like a box of chocolates. Right, right. Full of treats. Right, like, it really is. You, know, you open up like I want. You open if you were to carry your box of chocolates before. I, you open it up like I want to get the you know the praline in there. And like, nope, didn't get that one. Let me get the, <laughs> the you know, the caramel peanuts. Oh, yeah, I'll try that one. Okay, I'll try that one. Like, and you forget the original chocolate you were going for in the first place. In this case, this case was looking to rescue the emperor of, you know, David Innes, the emperor of Sari. Right? Like, yeah, they do a terrible job of the rescue mission. <laughs> so, Hoy, what were your impressions of Tarzan at the Earth's core? Uh, yeah, well, you know, the uh, the... Obviously, the, the the few pretty unfortunate racial depictions do jump out. Um, and I know that in the 60s, the Burroughs estate had asked for the books to be sort of re-edited for the paperback publication to sort of make them a little bit more uh, palatable. But there was still some stuff in here that was left over that it was like, why did they leave that here? Like specifically mm-hmm. the sort of uh, valet on the ship um, who sort of the sort of step and fetch it, you know, comedic relief character. Mm-hmm. Um the Waziris, by and large, who are, are the tribesmen that are sort of um, tar- Tarzan's sort of um, henchmen, come across fairly well, except for when they first read him, when they've been, you know, a, 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 you know, separated for a long time, and then suddenly they're all buana, buana, mm-hmm. you know. Um, Tarzan himself, you know, I mean, there's that, you know, this the weird trope of, you know, can we can we have Tarzan without essentially being a, a problematic character? And I think Tarzan himself is depicted pretty well. He's not, he's not sort of just lording over everything. 
Um, he, he's very receptive to the things that are happening. Uh, he understands that he's in a different place. You know, he, he's, he's sort of conscious uh, when he goes to the different tribes of trying to fit in. So I think that part works pretty well. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. I feel like um, when it comes to the racial depictions, we've got Robert Jones, who's kind of our minstrel show comedy relief. And considering this was written in 1930, that's not surprising. Um, the Waziri tribesmen, I mean, I say that I, I personally feel like they were depicted pretty well for the most part because we have the scene where Jason Gridley is on the dirigible mm-hmm. and he's specifically like, I need you to train the Waziri um, um, so they can learn about the engineering of the ship because if something happens, we need people who are able to do these things. And he's specifically talking about how incredibly intelligent the Waziri are. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if Jason Gridley respects the intelligence of the Waziri enough to teach them to become engineers, right. I think that says something um, something about how Edgar Rice Burroughs did see these as people who were capable and competent. Um, but then unfortunately, that's... Um, that's um, juxtaposed with this uh, minstrel show comedy relief that we have in Robert Jones. Mm -hmm. Completely unnecessary character too. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Now, uh, Chris, you're also talking about the romance of this (laughs) story. Hoy, what did you think of our central romance? Um, I actually um, kind of enjoyed it because again, I think that it allows Burroughs to slip in his occasionally cynical asides, like Uh about how like Gridley is like, Gridley's like completely underestimating the intelligence of the red flower and she's going, you know, and there's a whole long paragraph about how, uh, from Burroughs' point of view, about how intelligent she actually is. Yeah. Right? And then immediately juxtaposed by by Gridley saying like, oh, you know, she's just a savage girl. <laughs> I was like completely underestimating that. And also Gridley like talking about like the other two women he's involved in who are, you know, both phonies, you know, <laughs> like yes. one of them's like a Hollywood, you know, the daughter, daughter of like a Hollywood, you know, mogul or something like that. Um so those kind of commentaries, I think, are funny. Uh, also, Burroughs' social commentary on, like, organized religion coming up again, that kind of stuff mm-hmm. like that. It's, it's pretty mm-hmm. fun, pretty hilarious. So, <laughs> um, And it, Gridley, Jason Gridley has a character arc, in, in a way. He learns something, which is rare true. in a Burroughs novel. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> right. Ch- Least of all the dinosaurs and monsters. Right. Yeah. Least of all a sense of direction or timing, which is <laughs> a <really> problem. <laughs> yeah. That's a big problem. Yeah. <laughs> Now, with the central love story, I, I couldn't help but feel like we were kind of experiencing a bit of deja vu because it also felt very similar to David Innes and Diane the Beautiful in <laughs> terms of like, you know, they're both very attracted to each other. Um, then there's a, a misunderstanding. And now she has to act like she hates him in order to, um, I don't know, have um, honor in that situation. Yeah, right, Get right. used to deja vu. Yeah, you're, you're going to have a lot of deja vu, Chad. Okay. <laughs> now, are we going to be experiencing the same thing on Barsoom and on oh, Venus? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do think that Gridley himself is more uh, thoughtful than David Innes. He's got, he's got a little more interior life than David Innes. David I agree. Innes, I think, has a sort of more sort of manifest destiny attitude towards everything, whereas Innes is much more, you know, a man now of the, you know, 20th, fully a man of the 20th century, whereas uh, Innes still, I think, has some attitudes of the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. yeah. The thing that bothered me about David Innes is he doesn't really have any joy in life other than Diane the Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Whereas Tarzan, 
really enjoys being in Palu Star. He enjoys mm-hmm. swinging from trees. He enjoys killing things. Right. He's a, he's a character that's full of joy. Uh, some of what he enjoys isn't maybe that good, but he you know he he loves being being Tarzan. Right. 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 And, and even in uh, the he has the the you get because it's Tarzan you get that the full sensory impression that some of the other um, uh, Burroughs protagonists don't have. And so you, you get that sense of the smell of the jungle and all these other things and the colors that, that Burroughs hadn't been as descriptive with before in the in this mm-hmm. series. And so I think that's it does make uh, Pellucidar come a little bit more alive than in some of the previous books. And Tanar yeah. also. Right. Uh, from the, fir- the previous book. Yeah. Tanar yeah. really yeah. loved the life, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Tanner could kill an antelope and turn it into a bow and arrows right, with, right. with only his teeth. He didn't even need them. <laughs> right, right. There's a hero for you. <laughs> That's true. So, Hoy, have you read much or any Tarzan prior to this? Uh, only the first book so far. Uh, okay. I read last year. Um, and this is definitely a move. I mean, I know there's 12 other books in between, and I think a lot of people say that this was sort of a starting, there had been a little bit of a trough in the series prior to this book, and then it sort of came out of it, and there's another trough, and then sort of recovers again towards the end. So, you know, with a 24-book series, it's going to be some hmm. peaks and valleys, I would sure. imagine. Um, but most people say the first six books are the sort of the, the primal Tarzan. I've only read three. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Because I was going to ask if this was the moment in the series where Tarzan jumped uh, jumped the shark or if that happens multiple times throughout the series. But <laughs> jumped the stegosaurus. Jumped the stegosaurus, yes. The flying stegosaurus. Yes, the gliding stegosaurus. <laughs> uh, but so we were talking about, uh, you're talking about him, Tarzan, swinging through the forest. And, you know, I feel like we all grew up with the cartoons and live action imagery of this man in a loincloth swinging from the vines. But in this book, Tarzan specifically has a rope that he's always carrying with him. And is that what he's supposedly swinging with? I'm not quite sure. I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time visualizing how he's swinging through the woods to the jungle. I think it's more like a, a chimpanzee. You know, that he's just doing from the arms and his arms are exceptionally strong. They're not as long proportionally as an ape's arms. <laughs> but he's not using that rope for this. That I don't rope think is... so. I don't think okay. so. I think when there is a vine, he'll use it. But yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, that's my impression. And I, as I recall in the first book, he's not he's not using a rope to to swing. He uses a rope as a as a as a noose to like ambush people with, but not as a uh, you know uh, a, a modes of locomotion. But the yeah. rope does fail him, and this and this is how he meets the uh, the young tribesmen. In the- oh, that's right. <laughs> right. Yep, yep. Right. So uh, <laughs> his his wonderful senses fail him too. In the beginning, he becomes a victim. Who right. needs rescuing? <laughs> right, right. He gets snared in the pit trap. Uh, the uh, the 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 snare is hanging upside down on the tree. <laughs> so. And at first, I was really excited because my cover specifically has Tarzan flying through the air in the arms of a, parad- a pterodactyl. Yeah. So I fully thought when he was pulled up into that snare, I thought that's what happened at first, and I was like, "Ooh, we're like getting right to the action!" And <laughs> it was it was a trap. <laughs> For me as a reader. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Plenty of dinosaurs to come, though. Right, 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 right. Yes. But that Which, is where yeah, Tarzan rolled this uh, one on his surprise roll there. On the track. <laughs> <laughs> he sure did. <laughs> and I kept expecting a T-Rex to appear at some point because we had our, our gliding stegosauruses. Right. Uh, we had our, our um, triceratops. Yep. Mm-hmm. But we didn't get to that T-Rex. No T-Rex. Maybe the next book or the book after. Right. There you go. Okay, good. <laughs> 
there'll be one. <laughs> and there's another one in my dad's book. <laughs> there you Good. Go. Good. There you go. But I agree with you, Chris, that the the structure of this novel is kind of a mess and the ending is definitely a letdown because, you know, the whole the whole setup of the story is that Jason Gridley is getting Tarzan so they can go to Pellucidar and rescue David Innes. And the actual reality of the story is they get to Pellucidar. Tarzan decides to go swinging off in the jungle, gets lost. Gridley goes after him gets lost through uh and then we the, the entire novel is the two of them lost and then coincidentally keep and they keep meeting the same people or siblings of the same people right. and like in a very kind of farcical way co- constantly almost crossing paths right. and then at the very end they're reunited and in literally less than 5 pages at the last the, at the very end of the book we devise the plan to save David Ennis, put it into action, and succeed. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a Shakespeare comedy. Right, right. With a Zeppelin. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Don't forget they spend a couple chapters on right. the Zeppelin. Which, right, right. They do. Right. Which uh, I guess Burroughs did a drawing of it. Like, right, right. I, I see him like a little kid drawing his Zeppelin and getting all excited about it and then kind of forgetting about it. Right, right. Well, there is there is literally an exit stage cliff pursued by a bear, so. <laughs> That's true. Right. Very good. And the Zeppelin is basically a magical Zeppelin, too, because it's made with that, like, crazy metal, right, that, right. that super light metal. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and it is interesting that he had the Germans be good guys, though, in this book, because um, this is not that far after, you know, uh, World War World War One, uh, World War Two obviously hadn't occurred yet, and you know the Nazis hadn't taken power yet. But you know there was still, you know, I would imagine some suspicion of Germany. So it's interesting that all the the captains and the crew, the officers on the ship, are, are Germans. Yeah, I, I I don't know what his uh, feelings were, and uh, I'm sure there's different theories about that. <laughs> he has some Germans in uh, uh, Land the Time Forgot too, who aren't right. the, the who are not villains, right? But he, he, he drops the Germans when when we enter World War II. You'll be glad to know. <laughs> <laughs> so we do get quite a bit of Barosian cynical commentary about uh, mankind thrown throughout here. Mm-hmm. And in one moment, Jason Gridley uh, starts thinking about how man is creation's greatest blunder <laughs> and that we are the cumulative the accumulation of all of the vices of all the creatures that came before us and almost none of the uh, virtues. Yeah, that's pretty rough stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bur- Burroughs does not seem to have a very high opinion on um, on the rest of us <laughs> or himself included. All right. right. <laughs> And I will note, this is also the book where we finally see the Sagos from their sort of their interior life, right? We yeah. Actually, we actually have, um, what's his name? Tar. Uh, is it Targash? Targash. Right. And, and it's the first time that the, they're actually sort of well described because before we were like, the Sagos are some kind of like beast men, but they're not very well described in the first three books until we come to this book. Um, and then you're like, oh, okay. So the Sagos, they're, you know, they're just about their thing, but they're really no worse than anybody else. You know, they're, yeah. you know. Better than the horrible horrors, probably better yes. than some of the uh, some of the other tribes that you know are up in the mountains or the swamp tribes. So you know they just do their thing, throw clubs at people. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this might be a little premature because we're we're not quite in the gaming portion of it. But since we're bringing this up, one thing I would love to ask you guys is: let's say you are putting out the official Pellucidar box set for some Dungeons and Dragons retro clone. For the sake mm. of this episode, let's say it's a Blue Home for for, for Blue Home. Oh, thank you. 
Yes. So you're putting together your Pellucidar box set for Blueholm. Are the Sagoths a player race? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I've beat you to it. I ran a game a couple years ago and Targash was a character you could play. Perfect. (laughs) And the other thing you can do if you play a Pellucidar game would be you could play characters from any period of history that may have stumbled into Pellucidar. Right, right. Love it. So your pirates, any kind of seafaring race, mm-hmm. and also uh, Sagoths. Right. Yeah, you can have Vikings, you can have Amazon warriors, right. you can have Egyptian Nazis. pharaohs, Nazis, Nazis. Nazis. Right. samurai. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, 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 uh, again, maybe for the gaming, but I do recall when I was reading the Holmes, they sort of implied you could play any kind of creature that you could think of as long as you kind of talk to your DM about it uh, in advance. Whereas it became much more codified in sort of later editions of D anD D, this is a, an acceptable player race. This yeah. is, uh, you know, not. And so, oh that, yeah, yeah, we played a lot of weird, weird races in yeah. Holmes Basic. Yeah, yeah. Now, would but, the Horebs be a playable race, or would those primarily be an entry in the Monster Manual? I think of them as monsters. I think yeah. If you start humanizing every intelligent monster, then you you run out of monsters. Hmm. And uh, somehow you're no longer playing something pulpy or what what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I don't know. That's an interesting question. I could see like having them be monsters all the way up to like almost the peak of your campaign, but then you flip it by introducing some even greater like uh, extra dimensional evil. At which mm-hmm. point, then you mm-hmm. could have a horror become a new ally, and then you could be, have a playable horror at that part, at that point. But up till that point, having them be completely you know antagonistic. Sure. And same with the same with the Mayhars, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah. well, my dad actually humanizes the Mayhars in his book, Mayhars of Pelusitar. There you go. There you go. Which I'm very excited that will be episode 289. Right, right. If I am we, too. <laughs> if we finish this project, it will right. be our second to last episode. Right. <laughs> Although uh, Jeff and I both bought that book before we even started that project because we just talked about it, like we're like, oh, this book. Did you know this book exists? And we were both like, oh, wait, cool. So we both went out and bought it. But oh. then before we sequenced the, uh, the project, <laughs> then it ended up, uh, you know, towards the end. That's but, a great uh, coincidence. Yeah. I've had a lot of wonderful uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs coincidences occur in my life. <laughs> I'm starting to believe he's, a, you know, my patron angel or whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> I keep meeting people who've read Mahars or who are Burroughs fans or, right. or part of the Burroughs family. <laughs> right, right. Oh, very cool. Very cool. <laughs> And our very last episode will be Wizard of Venus. So. Cool. Yeah, yep. <laughs> Someday it'll happen. Your last episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's when we'll start our Traveler uh, Traveler series. <laughs> oh. <laughs> exactly. So now, um, Chris and I'm and Hoy, I'm, uh, are you guys familiar with the idea that ha- um, how most paleontologists think dinosaurs have feathers now? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Perfect. So you're running a game of D and D. And the T Rex comes um, rumbling through the jungle. Is it covered in <laughs> vibrant plumage? <laughs> yeah. uh, not only does it have vibrant plumage, it has lips now, which they've also determined. <laughs> <laughs> lips, yeah. really? They have determined the T Rex most likely had lips. Uh, I didn't know. In- oh, oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, not no, not to like pucker up and kiss with, but that did cover. You know, it's it's you know horrible fangs. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I have a strangely conservative uh, desire not to put dinosaurs into Dungeons and Dragons uh-huh. because dinosaurs oh. were real and dragons are 
fantasy. Mm-hmm. And I like to keep things separate. Aha. Uh-huh. Oh, so you also don't include things like saber two tigers? No, or mammoths. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> but I, what I would love to do is a game with dinosaurs and mammoths and saber-toothed tigers and mayhars, mm-hmm. but there would be no magic and there would mm-hmm. be no clerics and there would be no armor, mm-hmm. etc. Yeah. No pointy ears. Right, right. Would you use D&D as a substrate for that or would you do something else that would be, you know, a little bit more sort of uh, mortal? <laughs> I don't know. Possibly. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Something pulpy, whatever yeah. that means. Right, right. The other motivation for a Burroughs characters is never economic. They always want to rescue somebody or they're getting kidnapped. Right, right. <laughs> or they just want to explore, but they, they don't care about money, unlike right, right. Agoras Burroughs himself. Right. <laughs> they're beyond that. Uh, right, right. Yeah, even when they're creating the Empire, even when Abner and, and David Innes, it doesn't seem to be monetary or, or purely about uh, you know, temporal power that they're creating this empire, right? It's just all about this sort of weirdo vision of what constitutes progress, right? Yeah. He only <laughs> controls his empire through their love of him and Diane the Beautiful. That's all he needs to motivate <laughs> his armies. They just love him and Diane so much, they'll do right. anything. Well, he is very cool <laughs> and very handsome. Yes, as they um, all are. Right. <laughs> so on the third page of the story, when Gridley is trying to convince Tarzan to join the party, he says, there will be no financial profit for anyone concerned insofar as I know now. And then Tarzan looks at him and says, and you are an American? He says, smiling. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that was pretty great. Right, right. That's also a um, thing that comes out in the first Tarzan book, uh, Jeff, that Tarzan actually speaks English with a French accent because he's when he's first discovered in the jungle, it's by a French explorer. Oh. Right. He's taught himself how to read by these incredible powers of mental, you know, mental <laughs> acuity, you know, in the jungle with like a, a, like a, like a nursery rhyme book that, his, that was, you know, on the ship when his, his parents were shipwrecked. But yes. he had no, no idea how to speak. And so. <laughs> and also, apparently, the Sagoths speak the same ape language that is spoken yep. on the surface of the earth. Mm-hmm. That's right. So maybe they were a seafaring race at one time, too. <laughs> right, right. I like his sort of weirdo evolutionary theories that, frankly, I don't think he believes at all, but he's just throwing out there for, for, for humor's sake. Unlike Robert E. Howard, who I sort of kind of think believes his theories, and, and, and Lovecraft, who also I think sort of kind of believes his theories that he puts mm-hmm. out there, even though they posit them as fiction. Uh, whereas I don't think Burroughs believes a thing that he's writing. So that's mm-hmm. the, yeah. <laughs> I think Burroughs is very excited about science and right. evolution, but he doesn't fully understand it. But he's right. at heart, he's a science fiction writer. You may yeah. think of him as a fantasy writer, but he loves science and he loves, you know, thinking about sort of scientific ways of doing his his weird races. Mm-hmm. And it's a very sort of American vision of science that it's sort of very pragmatic and practical. And it's about like just like get her done. As opposed mm. to uh, sort of more sort of theoretical, um, you know, or philosophical vision of mm. science. Um, and at least that's my perception of it. Everything everything works eventually really right. well and doesn't backfire in a Michael Crichton way. <laughs> if you're working on a spaceship, you'll eventually make a spaceship or, or a, a giant dirigible that, with vacuum <laughs> tanks to hold right. it up, whatever that means. Right, right. That's going to work. Right, right. <laughs> yeah get her done <laughs> <laughs> and i also get the sense that he was reading a lot of 
encyclopedia entries and uh, and newspaper articles and and pieces about nature. And then just whatever he found interesting, he just he was like, okay, I'm going to include this in my story somehow. Like for example, the underwater lair mm-hmm. where the where, the, where where Jason Gridley is kept with his men, oh, yeah. um, and Edgar Rice Burroughs specifically states that it's similar to what crocodiles do with their prey. So I'm certain that Edgar Rice Burroughs was reading some entry somewhere about crocodiles, right. read that little thing, and was like, oh, that's cool. Right. I'm going to use that for some lizard man race. Right. I like to yeah. imagine him having like a, a subscription to like pop, like whatever the equivalent of like Popular Mechanics and like hmm. you know National Geographic magazine and all those. And he had like even like yep. a, clipping, a clipping file or like a you know his secretary like cutting out articles for him. It's like here, here's one you might like, right? And then mm-hmm. he's like reading them. Yes. Um, and and uh, Chris, I think your point is well made. I think he was because um, again, it's it's distant to us now, but I think he was very much uh, a man of uh, a man who was on the current edge, popular edge of what was going on, uh, you know, at his time. This is 1930, but this was not, you know, this was not um, completely speculative in 1930. This was kind of close to the the edge of what was popularly, you know, generally known about paleontology about. Um, you know, general, you know, mechanics and other sorts of technology. And then he extrapolates out a little further to the point where it does become science fiction. Um, but it's it's not like completely woo-woo made up out of nowhere. No. And yeah. you know the flying stegosaurus, which I thought was his weirdest idea ever. He got that from an article, apparently, <laughs> by Dr. Ballou from 1920. <laughs> and, uh, and I found a link to it when I read a review in Blackgate magazine. So... <laughs> There's Amazing. even a nice illustration of the, the gliding stegosaurus, <laughs> <laughs> which other people think are is like when when Burroughs jumped the shark in a sense. <laughs> but it was based on science as right. they understood it. Yeah. Right, right. That is so funny. <laughs> now, one of the things that Adam Styers pointed out to me in our converse in our book club, our patron book club prior to this episode, and also something Hoy you referenced earlier before we started recording is how on page three of the Holmes Blue Book, we have a lizard man riding a giant lizard. Mm. Is this a Pelucidarian Horeb? <laughs> what, uh, the drawing was done after the manuscript was put in, so it actually had nothing to do with my father. But okay. I do know that there is a miniature, I think by Dragon Tooth Miniatures, of a lizard man riding a giant iguana. Okay. So if you want to track that down, (laughs) I bet it all goes back to the Horibs, though. There was a comic book um, version of Tarzan at the Earth's core from the 60s, I think Gold Key Comics. Mm -hmm. And it has the Horibs on there, lizards on the cover, a nice painting of that. So I have a feeling that people saw saw these Horibs even if they hadn't read the books. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was in the zeitgeist or whatever. There you go. Now, am I uh, misremembering, but did your dad uh, correspond with Burroughs when he was very young or even meet him in Hawaii? Because I know that Burroughs was living out there for a little while just before uh, just before World War II, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. He, he met him as a boy um, and got a uh, an autograph from him. Oh, nice. But they, they did not correspond. But wow. I think... Uh, I think the combination of growing up in Hawaii and reading everything by Edgar Rice Burroughs, like my dad did, probably planted the seed that someday he could write a uh, a Burroughs-type story himself, mm-hmm. which he eventually did in the 70s. There you go. 
I also like that there is a lot of uh, conspiracy theory mythology in here as well. We've right. got um, reptilians in yep. the hollow earth. Right. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, how popular were those theories then? Or the, I think that's, I think to me that strikes as the, as a sort of mid 20th century uh, uh, conspiracy theory. But I wonder if that, you know, people were misremembering Burroughs and they just kind of like conflated <laughs> it with all the other paranoia they had at the time. Yeah, I didn't hear about lizard people until like the 90s, but yeah. <laughs> Same, but I was born in 80s, so that And that may sense. actually have had to do with a TV series V. Oh, sure, sure. V. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Series. <laughs> but it is interesting that they came from the hollow earth. Mm-hmm. All kinds of weird things down in there. <laughs> Giant animal life too apparently because Bros tells us that that reptiles continue growing their entire lives. Right. And that's why the Torbs are all different sizes, right? You know, they have just little ones that are like four feet tall and then the seven, nine feet tall. Yeah, that was cute. Yeah, yeah. Now, is that actually true, though? Uh-huh. I don't know. Um, I do think that not all reptiles, but I mean, I, they do have like certain like, um, like, is there a, a final cutoff? I don't know, but they, did, they, they do have a theory that a lot of dinosaurs just were more likely to die from injury than old age because they have some of them, they may have been as old as 200 years old when they died. And mm-hmm. certainly we know that there's tortoises and maybe some crocodiles that have well lived well over the, the two-century mark. Well, no one in Pellucidar dies of old age. Right, because there's no time there. Right? In the final book in the series, you'll finally meet an old man. <laughs> He's one of the monstrous things. that Because Burroughs was horrified by age and ugliness, as you may, right. <laughs> you may learn. Right, right. <laughs> Although at this point, he was probably, what, about 50, almost 55 when he wrote this book, I think, because he, mm-hmm. he died in 1950, right? So um, he's already got still, I mean, he's sort of a middle-aged man's perspective on a lot of stuff, which is, I guess, sort of that, that little bit of extra cynicism he's talking about that we talked about before about uh, just, like, mankind in general, organized religion. That, mm-hmm. that comment about the uh, munitions merchants, I think that was pretty on target at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. But, yes, he, he, I just checked. He was 55 yeah. when he wrote this. Yeah. Yeah, so if a, if a people have facial hair, if they yeah. have money, yeah. if they're unattractive, they're <laughs> villains. You know, look out for them. Right, right. All three, and you've got a horrible villain. Right, right. Now, one thing that I saw um, played out in the earlier Pellucidor novels, and we talked about in our earlier Pellucidor episodes, was kind of this idea of, like, boons. And I feel like this played out quite a bit in Tarzan at the Earth's Core, because first we have Tarzan rescues Targosh. And as a result of rescuing Targosh, he now has this in with the Sagoths. So um, it, it almost kind of seems to me as though one way that you could really gamify this is to encourage the players to do acts of heroism, not through alignment enforcement, but through a kind of in-game rewards for, mm. for, for good deeds. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, you rescue Targosh. You had no reason to rescue Targosh necessarily, but now put on your character sheet that Targosh owes you one. Mm-hmm. And you can cash that in how you want. And the way that Tarzan chose to cash that in is it gave him an in with the Sagoths. And then later he rescues Ovan, and Ovan is the son of the chief, And when they go to the village together, sure, Tarzan fails his charisma check and (laughs) ends up in in, ends up in jail or not in jail, but he ends up in um, like in a dungeon or whatever in a cave um, and they're going to kill him. But he cashes in his Ovan owes me one to have Ovan help him escape. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, 
that might be tricky to game, but it's it's definitely a, a very important principle in Burroughs. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, I think um, classic D and D is not real, not very well set up for that um, formally. I mean, you can certainly mm-hmm. do that, but I, I mean, I certainly I can see that happening in any number of sort of games that are a little bit more metagame, Savage Worlds, Fate, uh, GURPS, you get allies, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so, um, so there's no, there's no reason why that can't happen in, in, in regular D&D, it's just a matter of keeping track of it, right? Yeah, I think it could be as simple as the, the DM tells the player, okay, Targash Oja 1, write that on your character sheet, and you let me know when you want to use that. Exactly. And then... If in that moment when the character when the player wants to cash that in for the character, if it makes sense in the story, we're gonna roll with it. Right. That's great. It doesn't even have to make sense in the story because that would make it more burrowsy. Well said. Well said. I mean, like literally, people falling into holes also seems to be a pretty common thing, right? <laughs> the previous book, and now Tarzan falls into a hole because Jason Ridley pulls him down by the ankles just when he's about <laughs> yes. to be killed by the horror. Coincidentally, so, yes, right. yes. <laughs> so. holes, holes are very important. <laughs> Freud and Burroughs love holes. Yep, <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah, well, the, the main way to make a friend is either to rescue them or be kidnapped with them or have them tie you to a stake and about to burn you, but then <laughs> change their mind, I guess. Right, right, right. It was a different time. That's right. how you made friends back. Right, right. <laughs> they, di- they didn't have Tinder and Facebook. Right, right. <laughs> there is a lot of um, also man love in this book, too, right? Right. <laughs> there no other way of putting. It. Oh, I okay. mm-hmm. cannot conceive of Tarzan being gone. You know, he, never would the world see his bronze thews again, or something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, something like to that effect. I'm, I'm, I'm overstating, but you know, there is that sort of, um, which is fun. I mean, it's it's very fun. Yeah, there's something yeah. there, yeah. perhaps. <laughs> I think yeah. There's no there's no uh, extreme need to mechanize anything like that. And I think probably people did a lot, uh, Jeff, what, what you were doing informally, probably in the day. Yeah. And then I think people now have just become maybe because of the advent of organized play and stuff like that. If something is not codified, it kind of just like causes a circuit breaker to trip, you know, and that's why we get these like really, really long threads on the various forums. Like, uh, I want to do this, but it's not written in the rules for this game, this rule set or whatever. And um, sure. And I think that. And I don't even think you need to do like a hard codifying of it. But I think if you get in the habit of specifically telling your player that they can write this boon on their character sheet, A, that gives the that gives the player um, a in-game reason to do heroic acts Mm -hmm. and they can look at that sheet and it's it's another tool in their tool belt that they can possibly use later. And it's way cooler than a plus one sword. (laughs) Agreed. Agreed. You could also use the uh, karma. Uh, every time you rescue someone or do something heroic, you get a little karma point, which you can right, spend right. to influence fate. Right. Yeah. Right. It doesn't necessarily, exactly. It doesn't necessarily even have to do directly with that fate, just so that you've built up good karma. Right. So it might not be like an ally, but you've, you're building up good karma. No, I agree. That's, that's pretty cool. Sure. Yeah. Well, I ran a game in which there was a hole <laughs> and a girl <laughs> was screaming from down in the hole. And I assumed the heroes would jump down the hole to rescue her, but they, being Dungeons and Dragons players, they thought it was possibly a trap, <laughs> and you know, they should check it out by throwing a torch down there. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh. Like, no, you can't do that. You're a hero. <laughs> You're just supposed to leap into danger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what was your attitude when you were playing uh, as to you know? It's common now to talk about like murder hobos and stuff like that. But were you 
always in favor and was your dad in favor of sort of more heroic mode of play or what was going on there? I, I like to think we sort of naturally gravitated towards heroism um, I, and, uh, and that alignment discussions and problems never really came up. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I might be rosy tinting it a bit. Mm-hmm. Sure. But I did, I did really have a couple of characters who were so heroic that they got themselves killed. Of course. But then my dad found a way to, to bring them back. So <laughs> I guess I had faith that my dungeon master was yeah. going <laughs> to take care of me in the end. All right. So, Chris, when it comes to alignment, what is your preferred style of play? Do you like the three-point alignment system, the nine-point, or just ignoring alignment altogether? I ignore it. I ignore yeah. it. I feel like if you, if you do something wrong, like kill the person who's trying to sell you a map, you know, the town uh, watch is going to get on you and people mm-hmm. aren't going to trust you. And eventually, maybe you'll learn your lesson. Mm-hmm. If you're yeah. a teenager, probably not. But it <laughs> <laughs> de- depends on the teenager. They might. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I suppose if you're a cleric, then you should you should follow the code of your of your god. Yeah, right, right. But and even my dad did. In fact, uh, I think one of his medical students got who was playing a paladin did something really bad. And so he had an angel come down and, uh, and warn him. And then when, when he did something bad a second time, I guess he teleported him to the planet Yuggath. <laughs> there you go. Fight your way out of that one. So I feel like the healing that we saw in Tarzan at the Earth's core was also really kind of wonderfully pulpy and is very gameable in the way that I kind of like the game. Because, you know, Tarzan is lifted up by the pterodactyl. His back is all horribly scratched and clawed up when he is, like, climbing down the mountain. And he, you know, kind of binds his wounds. And then when he rescues Ovan, Ovan finds some healing herbs that he rubs on the wounds. And then we just never talk about it again. Hmm. Uh, yes. And th- that also feels very kind of D&D to me in a way where, like, you know, I, I, I understand why people gravitate towards realism. And you roll on a chart and, okay, you've broken your, your leg and it's going to require six weeks of, you know, your character being off of that leg, but it's like I don't really ever see that in the fiction. Mm-hmm. No, except never. maybe in Tolkien, yeah. a little bit. Right, right. No, I think you're right. Yeah. I think yeah. someone does get poisoned at one point in a Burroughs novel, but because Plucidar has no time, it, that's not a big deal. <laughs> <We> yeah, just, <laughs> just wait around, and eventually he gets better. Right, right. <laughs> and in the meantime, he learns somebody's language. So. <laughs> oh yeah, they pick up languages real quick oh, in yeah. this story. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and your point is well taken. Basically, mechanically, Tarzan is now down on hit points, but he's no less effective because he's not dead yet, right? And that's just, you know. Exactly. And also, he seems to kind of regain them all right. pretty quickly, too. Right, right. And, you know, it's like he had his long rest and right, now right, he's right. fine. You know, I did like the, also the bit of Jason Gridley losing all his stuff and he has to, like, he's just walking around with a, a gun belt and his shirt and, yes. and, and his, junk, <laughs> his junk is just hanging out and he's running around. You know? Yeah. And, and then when he turns that into a G-string and he's just like wandering around wearing only a G-string, he's like, this is awesome. Why don't people just walk around in a G-string all the time? This is so cool. Yes. <laughs> I believe Burroughs had a very happy childhood. Yeah. <laughs> and that maybe he didn't have to wear many clothes. Yeah. And he did a lot of climbing and he shot his you know toy gun at anything that moved. And right, right. He, just had, he never lost touch with that, that child who you know, liked running around and not a lot of clothes. 
Yeah. Right, right. Having adventures. Right, right. And then he eventually moved to your neck of the woods, right? And so you get to hang out in Southern California running around with not a lot of clothes, probably. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so. I, I think he tried being a cowboy for a while mm-hmm. and failed. Right, right. Well, you know, thank God he failed at all the other things he did before he became, you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got another DM question for you guys. Mm-hmm. So now there's the moment where Tarzan is lifted up by the pterodactyl and he's soaring through the air. And Tarzan starts thinking about how he knows that there are some flying creatures who drop their prey from great heights in order to kill them. And he's hoping that this isn't one of them. Is it fair to introduce a monster in a D&D game that does exactly that? Sure. Sure. Maybe it's, maybe it's well known, though. Like maybe that's what wyverns do. Okay. You know, I think it's... Yeah. I think uh, if you're going to have one of your players snatched up by that, uh, then you should certainly give them some sort of ability check, saving throw, or whatever, to, as they're dropped, grab onto the Wyvern's leg, right? Uh-huh. And then have a, some kind of crazy midair battle. And then if it plays out well enough, the thing, you know, slowly spirals down to the ground and they don't get crushed, you know, just dropped from like 30,000 feet. But, sure. you know, just make it like as by the skin of the teeth as possible and people will remember it, right? Um, as they long could as get we, grabbed by another monster. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> or, you know, some ridiculous burrows that, you know, they bounce <laughs> off of, like, you know, one of those trees that hangs out from the edge of a cliff, right? And, you know, they just keep on bouncing down. <laughs> some, some completely absurd thing that will be incredibly memorable, though, afterwards. Uh, this I is think. a mommy thiptar, too. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And, or um, they just put... They just put on the skin of another Thiptar and go flying off themselves. <laughs> <laughs> it's right, such right. a great, it's such a great image uh, when someone is carried off by a pterodactyl that I have to mention. <laughs> Fay Ray is carried off by a pterodactyl in King Kong. Right. Raquel Welch is carried off by a pterodactyl in One Million Years BC, the 1960s <laughs> version, and another Hammer actress is carried off by one uh, Victoria Vetri, maybe from. Uh, when dinosaurs ruled the earth, so amazing. <laughs> and Burroughs will carry off a caveman in uh, in uh, a Thiptar again in another right. book. Right, right. Good, good. And then there's a uh, Q, the, uh, the the Larry Cohen movie. Was it Larry Cohen back in the early eighties? Oh, yeah. 80s? Yeah, mm-hmm. the, yeah. So yes, the, pterodactyl snatching people out of the air. That's you know that was quite yeah. the coatl. Quite the coatl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this Classic. book has everything. Did right. we forget anything? Uh, it has everything but a plot. yeah actually i was telling adam styers in our in the patron book club that it really felt like the bulk of the novel was just um a a, a split party rolling on a bunch of random encounter tables yes right right (laughs) and some kind of hex crawl but you don't have a north on the map um but no it felt very much like i was reading this oh this does felt like a feel like a DD game um in the best sense of the word you know that (laughs) everyone's having fun uh, and it's almost like you're telling about that story not to some random stranger, but someone who was actually playing that game. Because <laughs> yeah, that's when it's fun. It's when you're talking to each other about a game that you already played, right? If you tell some stranger about a game that you played, nobody cares, right? But if you were both in that same game, you're like, oh, yeah, that was great. Remember when that happened? This is what this story, <laughs> this is what this story feels like to me. And a very well-timed appearance of Tarzan at the last possible moment when he was needed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is another thing that I don't know if Burroughs invented, but he definitely was the master of that. As well as the cliffhanger ending. Yeah. Oh yeah. Each chapter, because because they were split up, each chapter really felt like it was right before the commercial break. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so we are starting to run out of time. Chris, was there like one last thing about Tarzan at the Earth's core you really wanted to chat about? 
oh my gosh, I, I, we went through the racism so quickly. I thought that was going to bow our guest down. <laughs> but um, no, it's a, I'm glad you guys liked it as much as I did. Yeah. I, you know, it's one thing to be raised on Edgar Rice Burroughs like I was, but then it's, it's wonderful to meet adults who read at the earth's core and go, what a crazy book. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the next couple of books are going to be a little harder to love. So <laughs> I appreciate the warning. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's some cool stuff in the last one. Diane, the beautiful of all people is going to do something. Oh, cool. oh Hey, yeah. <laughs> but, that's uh, exciting. <laughs> yeah. That is very resourceful. And right, right. she's, She's going to command our respect. Right, right. Well, the, the Burroughsian, uh, at least the Burroughsian wild women, always mm-hmm. have are resourceful, right? That that is always a thing yes. that's going on with them. So that's that's good. They're not like the they're not like the the women like Conan encounters in the the Howard stories, who are usually, I guess, the opposite. They're like too civilized, and so therefore mm-hmm. they run around and like shriek at the top of their heads. You know? Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, and none of the Burroughs women are evil and manipulative. They're almost all princesses, basically. Yeah. Yeah. They're very resourceful princesses. They're bratty. Yeah. Right. You know, they're definitely petulant and bratty, uh, but they're definitely not evil and they're not uh, useless. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So, Chris, if people want to find some of the projects you've worked on online or find you online, is there a good way for them to do that? Not really. They, they're going to have to work on it. I'm reclusive. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I will let you know, my listeners know that if you go to Drive Through RPG and you search for Chris Holmes, you will find a bunch of products that he has done artwork on. So you'll find things like Blue Home, the Journeyman Rules, hmm. uh, XQ1, the Castle That Fell from the Sky. Uh, we've got fantastic, exciting, imaginative volumes one and two, things like that. Oh, so right. if you go to Drive Through RPG and search his name, you'll find some stuff. Yes, yeah. I do drawings. There you go. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and, uh, for commissions or is it something that uh are, that usually if people ask me nicely ah there you go okay and i get a free copy right so track them down by <laughs> oh i do have one i do have one bit of news i have uh, signed the contract with egress bros incorporated for the uh the reissue of mahars of pellucidar oh nice in both Ooh. hardcover and softback so nice nice that's something that is very cool to look forward go. to and the unpublished sequel as well. Oh, right, right. I, I remember reading about that. That was uh, for various reasons. They wanted to go another direction, Rain, And that was just put on the shelf for many years. So that's yeah. great. Red X of Pellucidar will be coming along, too. Great. And great. was this because of Christopher Paul Carey? Uh, yes. Very cool. Yeah, very it was cool. a friend of yours who put me in touch with both you and the Burroughs uh, people. Um, and I. I'm spacing out on his name. Sorry. <laughs> Greek name. Um, anyway, so yeah, it's great. We all, we're all getting together and we're all going to get to read more uh, John Eric Combs and more Pellucidar in the future. That's so great cool. News. Great news. All right, Hoy. So how can people find us? All right. Uh, if you want to uh, leave us some feedback, or uh, just tell us we're doing good, doing bad, you can email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. We're on MeWe, Facebook, and probably some of the other social platforms as well. And if you like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? 
You can go to patreon.com slash appendix and book club and show us your support there. We really appreciate it. And before the episode, we were joined by Adam Styers for the patron book club. And this was Adam's ninth consecutive patron book club that he's done with us. So if he makes it to the next one, it'll be 10 in a row. So that's very cool. We're glad to have you with us, Adam. Uh, speaking of our patrons, there are a few that we would like to shout out this episode. Uh, Adam Alexander, William Souter, Joseph, Ian Little, Lapis Dust, Eric Johnson, Andrew Sternick, Jared Logan, Noah Green, and Mason Coffey. Thank you so much for your continued support. Thank yes, you. thank you. And Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. This has been really fun. It's been fun for me, too. Looking forward to it. I get to see you on bar soon, I hope. We, we, we definitely hope so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, see you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.